Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You are listening to Be The Change, a podcast of conversations with true visionaries who are creating new paradigms for a healthier planet and society. I am your host, Christine Demick, and my work is in finding real solutions to the biggest problems we face today, climate crisis, capitalism, social injustices, and our failing health. There are amazing humans out there that have answers, and it is my mission to have their voices heard. Together, we can raise consciousness and create a just and equal society. Together, we can be the change. The only thing more upsetting than a child with chronic or life-threatening disease is knowing that the disease was entirely preventable. Toxic chemicals and air pollution have caused dramatic increases in asthma, ADHD, and even cancer in our children. And yet all of these toxins can be eliminated or regulated. So why don't we? Dr. Bruce Lanfear is on a mission to not just answer this question for us, but to make sure every parent is armed with this potentially life-saving information. Today, he joins me to discuss why prevention is constantly taking a backseat to treatment and how we, the public, can demand this changes. With both clinical and scientific doctorates, Dr. Landfair is a double threat to an industry who does not want you to be aware or informed. Prepare to be shocked, angered, and empowered, and ready to take action. Welcome, Dr. Lanfear. Thank you. It's so wonderful to have you here today. You and I met on a panel for Non-Toxic Neighborhoods, which you're the board of advisors. And honestly, I was just in awe of you and your work. You are a clinical doctor and a scientist, which to me is like the ultimate superhero <laughs> for fighting this fight. Not only have you seen ill patients, but you have researched the chemicals as well. So there's no denying it. This was clearly on purpose. The question is, did you know it or did the universe steer you that way? (laughs) Well, in fact, about 25 years ago, I decided not to focus as much on clinical care because I figured there was enough clinicians out there. And so I shifted almost entirely to prevention. I do rely quite a bit on my colleagues, of course, and a lot of the work I do is really synthesizing what others have done. But one of the things that really turned me on to this as an intern working at a VA hospital is that I became good friends with some of my patients. And several of them were dying from tobacco-induced disease. Now, it's easy for us to blame people for choosing to smoke. But what we now know is that the tobacco industry set off with this strategy to find ways to get people addicted to tobacco. And so as I watched my friends, my patients die, I really struggled with this. Why is it that we're failing to prevent preventable diseases? Why is it that we keep blaming the patients and not holding the industry responsible? Now, everybody knows the story of tobacco, but that story plays out time and again, whether it's lead, whether it's PCBs, whether it's opioids, the recent opioid epidemic, we see the same story playing out time and again, 
And what we've basically done is we've elevated the interest of industry over the health of our citizens. Yes. <laughs> and what, in your research, have you found that, why have we done this? I think the main reason is that the economic is so dominant today. Our politicians respond more to powerful interests who can make campaign contributions than they can to its citizens. So in a sense, if you think about it, and this is something I realized about a year after leaving the United States when we moved up to Canada, if you accept one thing, all of the idiotic policies in the United States, like not having access to universal health care, not having legally required paid vacations for workers, all of those and many other policies that didn't make sense, all make sense if you accept this one thing, and that is the United States has become a country that is run by the corporations, the mega corporations, for their own benefits. And so if you're not a worker, you don't deserve health care. Right? And so ultimately what that means is the powerful industries, the very wealthy, they're the majority shareholders. Even though they make up a very small fraction of the population, they're the majority shareholders. And the only way we can shift this and require our leaders, our politicians anyway, to begin to protect us from these powerful industries is that enough of the minority shareholders have to get together that we can outvote the very small but very powerful majority shareholders. I mean, you literally mean shareholders in the company to do this. Well, I mean shareholders in the sense that we like to think that we're part of a democracy, but that has been chiseled away over the years so that the very powerful now are really the ones who make the decisions, right? So as somebody who studied lead poisoning and its prevention for now about 25 years, I'd go in and I'd be involved in a Senate hearing about lead poisoning. And I would serve on science advisory boards to the EPA or to HUD. And of course, there was a process where they, I was heard, but in the end, they would ultimately make decisions that tended to benefit the very powerful real estate industry, for example, in the case of lead. And so we don't have a way for individual citizens to be heard as they should in a democracy. How would you suggest, have you put thought into that about how we could be heard? Because I, I think, Dr. Bruce, that you're speaking on something that everyone feels in everything right now, right? Across the board, social justice, economy, health, everything. You know, right down the Supreme Court, you saw what happened two days ago here. And we all feel powerless. That yeah. our voices, I mean, we feel power. Like, I, I don't want to say that. We know we have power and we go and we protest. Is that enough? Well, it's, it's all we have in the end. And I think the challenge, of course, is that enough of us have to get together and make demands about the same thing, like the health of our children, our access to, to health care. And right now, of course, the United States is so polarized. And by the way, I don't think that's an accident. As long as we can 
remain fragmented, we can't bring together enough of the minority shareholders, the citizens, and vote in our best interest. And it's, it's easy for us on one side of the aisle to blame people on the other side, but in a real sense, in, in many ways, the liberal elites and the conservative elites are really taking care of themselves and leaving many of the, let's call them the workers, the rest of us, behind. And we can't simply say it's the Republicans or the Democrat leaders on one side or the other. It's that the elite have largely been taking care of the elite. Now, you, you might say, well, why is a physician or a scientist interested in all of this? And really, when one of the most important things we can do, those of us who are really interested in prevention, is you always ask the question, what's the upstream cause or risk factors that lead to these problems? And I think very recently, of course, we have the opioid epidemic that's just so obvious that this greedy, powerful pharmaceutical industry did things in a way that was misleading, if not illegal, to increase the sale of their drugs. And they watched as more and more people became addicted. And this isn't just those people. I think every one of us probably knows at least one person. I know at least two people who got caught up in this and are still struggling with their addictions, right? This affects every single family. Now, in this case, at least, the role of the pharmaceutical industry is so clear, we can't ignore it. But that same thing happens when you consider the obesity epidemic, the diabetes epidemic, the tobacco epidemic, the lead poisoning pandemic, and on and on and on. And yet what we've tended to do, instead of regulating these industries that make these products that make us sick in the first place, is we tend to blame the victims. Yeah. We blame the drug addicts. We blame the smokers. We blame the alcoholics. One of the things that was very appealing to me about working in children's environmental health is that you can't blame kids. And yet, of course, we shouldn't be blaming their parents or adults either when we've set up an environment that makes it easy to become sick, that makes it easy to become addicted, that makes it easy to become fat, that makes it easy to develop coronary heart disease. And that's basically what we've done because it's profitable to people who are making decisions. And profit, right? Profit over people. Do you feel that there's any government right now that is handling this in a way that it should be handled and putting people over profit? Yeah. Well, there's no perfect government. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's a constant tension between balancing out the benefit to industry, the benefit to the public. And it, it is a tension. It's not one or the other, except that right now we're so imbalanced. So the United States has always been this, you know, it's always been the me and not the we. Well, that's one of the things we've, we've learned about prevention. There's this epidemiologist, Jeffrey Rose, who really is one of my public health heroes, who's laid out what would it take to prevent disease? And I think one of his most radical ideas is this idea that there's no reason that people in the United States, for example, can't be as healthy as people in the healthiest country in the world. He also, along with other public health scientists, would say that 
many of the diseases that we experience are preventable. Coronary heart disease, the leading cause of death worldwide, is a preventable disease. Yet the vast majority of our health dollars go towards treating people once they have the disease, not towards finding ways to prevent it. And so this radical idea basically should shift the way we approach our health and begin to ask the question, okay, if most diseases are preventable, what can we do over the next five or 10 years to prevent coronary heart disease, diabetes, cancer? And that's not the question we're asking. Those questions aren't even on the table in the United States. It's all about who's going to make the next new drug that's going to be a blockbuster that the drug companies can charge $1,000 a pill for. Or Joe Biden's moonshot for cancer cure, right? We know a lot about how to prevent cancer, and that's not even on the table. There's no moonshot to prevent cancer. And so we're not even asking questions. And I think one of the most important questions we could ask, and I've not been able to find these types of surveys, what would a parent prefer? Would a parent prefer that their child never have leukemia? Or do they feel confident enough that there's going to be real cures out there? Because we spend over 96% of our research dollars on finding cures, very little, 4% or less, on finding ways to prevent cancer. When I had Dr. Cuomo on, she had mentioned that as well, and I, I found that shocking. So 4% is spent on prevention? Well, you can look at, in general, you can look in at general. it for specific conditions or disorders, but yes, in general. So until we can change the system, what can we do? Can you talk about some of the things that you found? You have an incredible site, first of all, and I'm going to mention this a few times. It's called littlethingsmatter.ca because you're in Canada, littlethingsmatter.ca. And you have videos that are just wonderful, wonderful, filled with information on this topic, on how we can prevent it, what's going on, how we can arm ourselves. And anyone from my, you know, from a seven-year-old to a 79-year-old could understand. Can you lay out some of this and give everyone an overview? Yeah, I think a couple of the concepts, and again, Jeffrey Rose is really the person who helped to articulate some of these concepts and that we built into those videos. One of them is called the prevention paradox. And the prevention paradox basically goes like this. The majority of death, disease, and disability occurs among people who are at low to moderate risk. Now, that seems completely counterintuitive, and it certainly is in conflict with the way we've set up our health system in the United States, which is targeting the high risk or clinical population, right? We wait for people to get sick and then we do something. Right. A preventive strategy has to take into account people who are at low to moderate risk for two reasons. One is that's where the sick people come from. And number two, if we want to prevent disease, We've got to focus on people who might be at lower risk, but who make up a much larger portion of the population. So a quick example that, that we use in one of our videos, in Canada, about 12% of new cases of diabetes come from 
a population that's very obese. And the very obese population is about 4% of the public, right? So they're about three times more likely to develop diabetes. But if we only focus on those very obese Canadians, we'd only prevent about 12% of new cases. Okay, well, why don't we do obese and very obese? So they make up about 17% of the population. And collectively, they account for about 38% of new cases of diabetes. But we're still missing 62% of new cases. So the only way we're going to really prevent the majority of new cases of diabetes if we have these population strategies, community-wide strategies that not only target the high risk, but also the low and moderate risk. And one of the things that's so appealing about that is that we can't necessarily say which of those people, either in the high risk or low risk or moderate risk, are going to develop diabetes. And so, in a sense, what we have to do in order to protect the few, we have to protect the many. And that's really kind of a, for me, a very appealing concept because from a public health perspective, I know I'm not going to solve a public health problem by doing personalized predictive medicine or what's called precision medicine, right? Finding ways to target the genes of one individual at a time is never going to get us to where we want to be in terms of community-wide health. It might be great for those very few people who can afford half a million dollars to do personalized predictive drugs. And in fact, you take something like childhood leukemia. One of the new advances that NIH is touting in the United States is immunotherapy. Now, immunotherapy for childhood leukemia, which is today primarily used for children who have resistant leukemia, cost a half a million dollars for the treatment itself. That's not for hospital care. That's not for the physicians, right? This is how we're going to solve our problems. Right. At the same time, as we showed in one of our videos, there are scientists at UCSF who have shown from their studies in California and around the world that one out of four cases of childhood leukemia can be attributed back to air pollution, benzene, paints and solvents, tobacco smoke exposure, and pesticides used in and around the house during pregnancy. Now, that's one out of four, but that's a good start. Right. And yet, most cancer agencies and foundations dismiss all those studies and continue to focus on finding cures for cancer. So, you know... Having been pregnant, and I have a 13-year-old son, and you get all sorts of manuals <laughs> when you're in the breastfeeding's better, and if you have to formula feed, there's this, you get a whole kit. Why wouldn't there be in that kit something to say that, you know, maybe if you live in a home and you have roaches, that you wouldn't use Raid spray? If you live in the city, perhaps, you know, we recommend getting an air purifier these types of things that would prevent the disease, right? Yeah, there's a couple reasons. There's actually a couple different layers. I think on one hand, oftentimes what happens to our government officials is they have two oftentimes conflicting goals. The first goal is to protect its citizens. The second goal is to make its citizens 
feel protected, mm-hmm. right? So let's say, as we know from the evidence, that there's no safe levels of air pollution. Now, our health officials, they really don't want people to walk outside, you know, in the streets of New York City, worrying about air pollution causing lung cancer, uh, COPD, coronary heart disease, asthma, preterm births, right? And so what they've come up with are these acceptable levels, which makes it sound okay. But what we now know is that there are no safe levels. At every level, we see evidence of harm, particularly for things like coronary heart disease mortality. And so that's one level. The next level, of course, is that many of our government leaders are beholden to people who run industries. And those very wealthy industries have too much power. And I think on another level, it just seems overwhelming. Air pollution is everywhere. People drive cars. There's industries. We can't change that. And that's true. We can't change it tomorrow. But we could develop a strategy over the next 10 to 20 years so that by 2040, we bring it down to a certain level. And we occasionally see those kinds of efforts, like some cities or states doesn't tend to be federal because we haven't been taken on these challenges at the federal level. You have to really look at cities and states anymore to to find innovative solutions. But shifting over to electric cars, for example, is key to achieving those low levels of air pollution. So that's another level. And even another level is we think that many of these problems, air pollution, lead exposure, chemicals in our food should be best resolved by federal regulations. And a large part of my efforts really have focused on that. Moms should not have to worry about whether arsenic is in their applesauce or their rice, but they do. Mm -hmm. And so my efforts really have been trying to focus, at least initially, on how do we develop regulations so that moms don't have to worry about their applesauce? Well, That should work, but it hasn't worked very well. Why not? Well, for some of the same reasons we've talked about, there's too much power in the industries to really bring about the kind of changes that are needed. And one of the things, frankly, that shocked me with the COVID epidemic is I did not expect that we would shut down cities like we did. And not to take away anything from the COVID epidemic and how we reacted to it, I think that was right. But why didn't we do that for coronary heart disease that kills 600,000 people every year in the United States? We know how to prevent it. Air pollution and lead are two big risk factors. Smoking, heavily processed foods, lack of exercise. We know how to prevent it. Why aren't we? I think that's interesting. I'm sorry to chime in there. That Also, you brought in, I think very few people know that lead and air pollution are a contributor to coronary heart disease. I think people think, oh, sure, it's that... I shouldn't be eating fried foods. I should lay off the ham. Like definitely don't smoke, exercise a little bit more. No one even considers the air pollution. It's not known, Dr. Bruce. Yeah, well, certainly in in public health, it is lead as a risk factor. Even that isn't widely recognized in public health. 
which to me is quite striking. Again, I think there's several different layers here. If you go back to the Framingham study, the landmark study that really helped to put risk factors on the map for heart disease, and they really focused on hypertension and smoking and physical activity, all of, of course, which are important. But they also were very careful not to intervene in the clinical practice of the physicians in Framingham. And they also said very clearly up front, we're going to focus on what a physician can deal with in their office. Yes, there might be other socioeconomic, cultural factors that lead to heart disease, but we're not going to deal with that. That's somebody else's problem. And I think that kind of a mindset has continued till today. It's also very convenient for the industries that make these products or emit these pollutants that cause disease. No, we're not responsible. It's the individual's behavior. It's their lifestyle choice. And so it's very convenient way to pass the buck. Now, the problem, of course, is our leaders in public health and in government should not allow that to happen, but we have for much too long. And so that dominant story that it's all about people's individual choices doesn't have any room for, oh, by the way, air pollution also causes coronary heart disease or lead does too, right? It's just so convenient. Why would we contaminate that story, that narrative with these environmental toxicants? Yeah, to me, it's capitalism just gone crazy, right? I think that's right. It's really capitalism unbridled. And, And nobody that I talk to is trying to say that there aren't some important values in having incentives built into the system for people. That if you create something, you deserve to reap some of the benefits. But I moved to Canada, my family and I moved to Canada so we could pay more taxes. I say that somewhat jokingly, but these are taxes that benefit everybody. Right. Not just universal health care. All three of my daughters are going or have gone to universities or colleges that cost a maximum of $7,000 a year in tuition. People can still afford college. Students don't walk away with 20 years worth of debt that they can't handle from going to a $45,000 or $60,000 a year university. So we have a system that better protects the common person. Yes, and I don't think the common person here understands that. Instead, they see it as, or maybe they're not even allowed to see it because it's presented to those who are protecting capitalism as something that's going to take their freedom away. Or... You have the right to have privatized health care. Well, of course you do. But who wants to pay $1,600 when we could have Medicare for all, right? I see that, you know, I know what my husband gets. I know what I get. And it's crazy. Dr. Bruce, are they still letting people in Canada? (laughs) (laughs) It's a little harder to get in these days, especially during the pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Are you a U.S. citizen? Are you born here? I'm a dual citizen. Both my wife and I were American citizens, and I started to feel a lot of the pressure back in 2001 under George W. Bush. I was disinvited from the CDC-led advisory committee, lead poisoning prevention advisory committee, 
back in 2001, I was picked off of the EPA science and research working group, another committee I was on where we reported to the ministers of environment in Canada, Mexico, and the United States was dissolved. And our report on how pollutants impact children's health was held up for three years. So this all happened under the George W. Bush administration. You know, we look at Trump and he's absolutely tragic. Abhorrent. But the way we got here is not just about Trump. We've had huge systemic problems building up over the last three to four decades. And because of my research being attacked by the lead industry in particular, the paint industry as well, I think I was able to feel that, experience it sooner than, than many others. And so when my dad was diagnosed with ALS back in 2008, and I was offered a position up in Vancouver, which is just two and a half hour drive down to Seattle where my parents lived, I took it. And again, grateful that we were allowed to pay more taxes. The exact same thing. Uh, do you know Dr. Arlene Blum? Yes. Do you know her personally? I imagine yes. you probably do. So I was shocked to hear about how, you know, she worked on, for anyone who doesn't know, she worked on flame retardants during Nixon. And which a lot of people don't realize that Nixon did start the EPA. You know, we started looking at, at that in the 70s, but she had banned flame retardants. She found them to, you know, they cause cancer. And actually our government said, so stop it. They came about because people, of course, wanted to smoke in bed and the government said too many people are dying. So instead of getting rid of cigarettes, which would have been the right thing, right, they created these flame retardants. Of course, she got them banned. But just as soon as she did that, by then the chemical to douse our mattresses and furniture, et cetera, with was a billion dollar industry. So they couldn't let that go. They created another one. That's right. And this, this leads to what we now call regutterable substitution. Yeah. And it, it works a couple different ways. You Say that it. again, Dr. Bruce. What is that called? Regrettable substitution. It doesn't sound bad enough. We need a different term. One way to think about regrettable substitution is that we shift from one chemical to another one. So like early on, lead arsenate, lead and arsenic was used in orchards and cotton fields as a pesticide. When that was found to be toxic, they moved to DDT. When that was found to be toxic, they moved to organophosphate pesticides. When that was found to be toxic, we've moved to pyrethroids. Now there's, and neonics, now, and Roundup, which is an herbicide or glyphosate. And so we keep doing this. And what's so tragic, and I, I think what most people don't realize is that these chemicals that are used on our farms in our food, in and around our houses, are assumed to be safe until they're proven toxic. Because most of them were grandfathered in, in 1976. So they were assumed to be safe until they're shown to be toxic. But what does it take to prove something's toxic? The burden of evidence is extraordinary. Usually dozens, if not hundreds, of laboratory studies and dozens of studies involving humans, if not hundreds involving humans. Now, what that means is if you take something like lead, some of the work we've done in lead for the past 25, well, actually a number of us over the past 40 or 50 years, is that we recruit large numbers of pregnant women or children. We collect blood to find out what the levels of lead are. We follow them up to see whether 
they're more likely to develop ADHD or learning problems if they're more heavily exposed to lead. But it's not enough just to have one study. And so the amount of evidence you need to bring to bear is extraordinary. Back in 1984, I think it was, the president of the Lead Association said, our success has been in the delay of regulations, right? With every delay, they can continue to make profit. So this idea of regrettable substitution, it also works within chemical classes. So bisphenol A, a chemical that mimics estrogen as well as other things, was voluntarily taken out of our drinking bottles. Now, it's still oftentimes found in canned foods. And for the drinking bottles, it was oftentimes replaced with other types of bisphenol chemicals, which are now being found to be toxic. So that's another form of regrettable substitution. (laughs) And the thing is, you don't have a right to know what's being used. That's proprietary information. And so ultimately, while we still need to focus on changing the regulations at the federal and state or city level, any more, and I think many people are doing this, is they're recognizing the only way to protect themselves and their family is to try to change their own lifestyle, to change what they do, to change how they eat. So increasingly people are recognizing that they can't rely on their government to protect them from toxic chemicals. And I surprised myself a couple of years ago, I was asked to, to do a talk for the chemical management program in Canada, which is like EPA, it oversees the chemicals that are used in commerce. And I was asked a question and my response was, well, I don't trust that our federal government is protecting me or my family or the rest of us from toxic chemicals. In fact, I know they're not. And so it's not a surprise that we're seeing more and more people like yourself who are talking about how families can try to at least gain some control over the toxic chemicals found in their own homes. So that brings me to this question, which is, I know you have children and you have grandchildren now. Congratulations. What do you recommend to your own children and and grandchildren in staying healthy and preventing leukemia and ADHD, all that? What, What do you tell your children? Well, my kids had to put up with us all the time. You know, we'd be sitting at the dinner table and, you know, one out of five nights, I'm sure that dad would be talking about toxic chemicals again. So they put up with a lot of this. What we've learned over the years, and my wife, Nancy, who's a developmental pediatrician, has played at least as an important part in this as I have. And in many ways, my daughters have been great teachers for me, too, about why. So what we've done over the years is that we've shifted as much as possible to organic food. We try to minimize the packaging we use. We've pretty much gotten away from canned food entirely. You know, there were some things that were really hard, but, you know, like tomato sauce was a challenge. But you can find that in glass bottles. So we've we've shifted to that. Canned beans were hard, but now we use the Instant Pot. So we found ways to minimize the packaging, rely heavily on organic food. We mostly cook our own food from scratch, which is wonderful because it means that, you know, in the evenings we cook together 
and have a time to catch up on what happened during the day. During COVID, in our, our Vancouver home, my youngest daughter and her partner live, and then my other daughter and her daughter, Marley, my granddaughter, live with us as well. So we were having evening meals with everybody, and we were all taking turns cooking. And it actually it brought a lot of enjoyment, even during a time like COVID. So that's the first thing, is we can take some control over what we eat. And we try not to be zealots about it. Like, so, you know, if we go to a restaurant, we don't get real upset if they're not serving us organic food. We might tend to go to those restaurants that are thoughtful about sustainable fishing and and all of that, but we do what we can. And then we go about with our lives. We certainly don't and haven't used pesticides in and around our home or allow people to smoke inside the home. That's by now, I think most people have adhered to that. So those are the kinds of things we can do. Oh, here's one of the hard challenges for my children. Three of my children, they're all daughters. And for years, I tried to get them to just not use cosmetics and lotions and perfumes. And that was really challenging because, of course, the message they get is if they don't use these things, they won't be beautiful. Yeah. Right? So I try to tell them, if you're beautiful as you are, you don't need these things. And, you know, they'd kind of roll their eyes and say, yeah, you're just our dad. Now, in their 20s, two of them don't use much of anything, you know, other than the deodorant, shampoo, so minimal things. And one other daughter still uses probably more than I'd like, but she tries to be very thoughtful about it. In fact, two days ago, she asked me to look at this company and what did I think of them? So that was another particularly challenging thing because, I mean, invariably, most of the products and cosmetics we can't trust. And so whenever possible, here's my rule of thumb. If we didn't evolve with it, avoid it. Now, there's a few caveats or conditions that go along with that, of course, because we did evolve with lead and mercury, for example. At fluoride? We did. We evolved with that, but not at the levels we're exposed to today. So the industrialization of society brought with it heavily contaminated environment. So like lead, even today, blood levels have declined by over 90% since the 1970s. But there's still our blood levels and our children's blood levels are still 10 to 100 times higher than our pre-industrial ancestors. So it's been this industrialization that has brought even the natural elements like lead and mercury were just so much more heavily exposed to. So if you can, as a general rule, avoid those chemicals that we didn't evolve with or we didn't evolve with at these concentrations, I think that's a reasonable rule of thumb to begin with. Yeah, my difficulties and with having a teenage son, what I get resistance to right now is deodorant and fluoride toothpaste. Fluoride's a neurotoxin, and a lot of people don't understand this. And my own dentist came in. I hadn't let him use fluoride toothpaste. He hadn't needed it. Also considering that when he was six, that his teeth were sealed in fluoride without me even knowing it. They try to give fluoride treatments whenever you go to the dentist. Craziness. So anyhow, we used a nice you know, toothpaste. And I remember she came in because they were doing separate cleanings. And of course, this is my son. He loved to tell his dentist, my mom doesn't let me use fluoride. (laughs) She came in shaking. She was shaking. I mean, 
literally so angry with me about it. And I said calmly, and I said, well, does he have any cavities? And she said, well, no. And I said, well, he hasn't used it in six years. And he has no cavities and no fluoride. I said, and also Newsweek just came out with an article saying that fluoride is not needed and could be more harmful. Given that it's in our water, it's in the fluoride rinse, it's in the toothpaste, it's in nearly, you know, everything. He has better chance of having fluorosis. Well, there's a lot of new science. And I've, I focus mostly on studying whether fluoride is a, a neurotoxicant, whether it damages the developing brain. And there is several studies now that suggest that the fluoride that a pregnant woman is exposed to and even the infant are detrimental to brain function, to their learning abilities. I'm not an expert on the protection of teeth against fluoride. What I've been told by some of my colleagues who are experts is that it's the topical fluoride that provides the benefit, not systemic, right? So that would suggest we need to rethink the way we use fluoride. We shouldn't be putting it in the water, if that's true, and we should be focusing on fluoride toothpaste. But I think you bring up an extremely important point, and that is I've been surprised and troubled by how much we've been fixated on fluoride as the only solution to tooth decay. And we know there's other risk factors. Lead exposure is a risk factor for tooth decay. Nobody talks about that. Sugar, what about sugar? What about the heavily processed food that 80% of which contains added sugar or sugary beverages? Why aren't we regulating those industries? If we really think it's a problem, why aren't we providing free dental care to children, right? There's other options. And we've been so fixated on fluoride for reasons that I can't fathom. And it really is time to stop, pause, revisit this new evidence and decide where do we go from here? What do we need to do today to eliminate tooth decay? Because even with water fluoridation and 73% or so of water supplies around water treatment plants around the country, over 50% of kids still have tooth decay. So it's clearly not sufficient. And with this new evidence, we really need to revisit what we should do to protect kids, not just their teeth, but also their developing brains. I love that. Thank you for us elaborating on that and correcting it. And, you know, because there's so much information out there and I do my best and I look at NIH, we go to where we can, but it's so nice to have doctors out there that we can trust <laughs> that is providing us with this information. So we, we can guide our children. I'll sleep better now knowing that painted on floor I didn't <laughs> completely remove my son's IQ. <laughs> and it's just that he's 13. Well, the other point to bring up is that we haven't studied the effect of fluoride on older children or adults sufficiently. Yeah. And so there's a lot of uncertainty about whether it's safe. There's certainly evidence that it disrupts the thyroid, but the evidence in terms of brain development does really seem to be in those early years, Formative. the pregnancy during fetal development and then infancy. 
but there's still a lot of questions about the safety of fluoride later on, and we just haven't been willing to ask those hard questions. Because it's a billion-dollar industry. Why would we, right? It's been interesting to try to figure out what industry is benefiting from this. I don't know. And Crest? it hasn't. I mean, Procter & Gamble? Well, that's true for toothpaste, but I don't know that they have anything to do with water fluoridation. Now, oh. there is some evidence that's been dredged up that shows that if the fertilizer industry, for example, couldn't sell the fluoride waste product that they have yeah. to be used in water treatment and water fluoridation, that they'd have to treat it as toxic waste and pay to have it disposed of. So those kinds of things really need to be investigated more thoroughly. Why is it that we've been so fixated on fluoride, for example? I don't understand it, but clearly there has been something or somebody that has prevented us from asking some important questions. Follow the money, as they say. <laughs> I think that's the good place to start. Yeah. So, Dr. Bruce, I could talk to you forever, and I know you don't have forever to talk to me. And we're getting towards the end, so I want to ask you this question. I ask everyone on, who comes on the show what your why is. So I know that this isn't an easy road to walk. You wake up, you know, you have some successes, but you also, there's many things that, you know, setbacks that you have to constantly keep fighting this fight. What keeps you getting up every morning and continuing the fight? I used to have a picture of uh, Gandhi on my wall and Gandhi was taking care of a leper. And it was, you know, similar to looking back on my early days at the VA and watching my patients, my friends die of preventable diseases. It really bothers me to watch people suffer needlessly, to watch people die needlessly. And so I think a large part is this idea that as a physician, as a scientist, as a citizen, as a father, my role is really to try to think not just about how do I prevent suffering in somebody today, but what can we do today so that people don't have to suffer in the future? And we know enough about the risk factors or causes of so many chronic diseases. These chronic diseases that every one of us either has or has a family member or friend who's had a disease that we know can be prevented. Now, we don't always know, and this is the hard part of epidemiology, we may reduce air pollution and it may not reduce this child's leukemia. But we do know that if we reduce air pollution, we can dramatically reduce the number of children that will develop leukemia. And that's enough. In order to protect the few, we have to protect the many. Mm. Beautifully said, Dr. Bruce. Thank you. Can you please let everyone know where we can find you and mention the website again? And you have a book that's going to come out at some point? I've been working on a book for about three years now, and I keep getting pulled into uh, dealing Podcasts. with <laughs> Podcast research. One of the things I enjoy doing most is working with younger investigators on the research, and I keep getting pulled into that. It's going to be a few years, but I'm thoroughly enjoying 
writing this book because what I'm trying to do is, is put some of these public health questions as mysteries. Why, for example, do we live longer? And it probably isn't what you think. Why did coronary heart disease decline? Again, it probably isn't what you think. So I'm trying to put this in the context of mysteries, both to make it more interesting, but what we have learned is that we live longer, coronary heart disease has declined, there's fewer people dying on the roads because of these population strategies. It has relatively little to do with having a $1,000 new pill. Dr. Bruce, have you looked at TikTok? No, I haven't looked at TikTok. <laughs> I mean, maybe we could ask the young researchers that you're talking about because I see the, Nye the science guy. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so yeah. on the TikTok, so my 13-year-old son looks at that. So you're Dr. Bruce the health guy, <laughs> right? Or the toxins guy. And like these little videos, I don't know. I just see that they could go viral. You could go viral, Dr. Bruce, and get that information out there. And that's ultimately what it is, Right. It really is. It's about how do we get this new information out there that when you view it collectively, you begin to realize that we've been operating or we are operating from a broken narrative. So 50 years ago is the cancer and heart disease and obesity and diabetes were rising. We quite naturally wanted to do something to reduce the suffering, right? We looked for ways to treat people who already had the diseases. All of that made sense. 50 years later now, we know many of the risk factors are causes of these chronic diseases. But in the interim, this huge biomedical industry, biomedical industrial complex has arisen to help treat all these diseases. And so we have not been able to shift and think about how can we prevent these diseases. I want to end up with a quick anecdote. Yeah. I've done a survey of pediatricians, over a thousand pediatricians over the last two and a half years or so. And I asked those pediatricians, it was a hand-raising survey in audiences I did at New York University, UC Davis, in Vancouver for the Canadian Pediatric Society. And the question was, as a pediatrician, would you vote to, one, increase funding to enhance the cure for childhood leukemia, or two, would you increase funding to find ways to prevent childhood leukemia? Now, it's important to know at the outset, what these pediatricians do, that childhood leukemia is arguably the poster child for finding a cure for cancer. It's not a perfect cure. About 15, 10 to 15% of children still die there's always the fear of relapse. There's secondary complications like some cancers and chronic diseases that result from the treatment itself. But, you know, it's still this great success. So I asked these pediatricians, out of the thousand or more pediatricians, only five of them raised their hand to vote to increase the funding to enhance the cure. Virtually all of them said they would vote for prevention. And yet, if you look at how the National Cancer Institute's budget for childhood cancer spends its money, only 1% of their budget goes towards prevention of childhood cancers. 
despite the fact that we have evidence that we could prevent one out of four cases of childhood leukemia. That's what we're struggling with. And I think the only way we're going to bring about change is if the communities and mothers in particular stand up and say, enough. We need to focus on finding ways to protect our children, to keep them from developing diseases, and not spend all of our money, all of our research dollars, all of our healthcare dollars on treating the disease only after it arises in our children. A wonderful way to end. And I hope that this is the case. And again, I think it, that it's people want to be the hero. Prevention isn't as glamorous as finding this cure and walking around and probably not as profitable, I would imagine. So That's right. Well, thank you, Dr. Bruce. And again, I want to remind everyone that they can find you at littlethingsmatter.ca. Is that right? Littlethingsmatter.ca? Yeah. It's a wonderful website full of information and fantastic videos that will really take this, what can be an often a complex subject and just very straightforward on what we can do. So thank you, Dr. Bruce. And thank you so much from me, just all of us. Thank you for everything that you do and for being the change and for putting people before profit. I for one appreciate it. Thank you, Christine. Appreciate your work as well. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and are inspired. We grow with supporters and listeners like you. So please share this podcast with your community and follow us on Instagram at bethechange.nyc. And to learn more about our guests and what you can do to be the change, go to our website at www.bethechange.nyc. That's bethechange.nyc. Thank you and be well.